0: Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Lovely to be with you again here at Great Parks. I always particularly enjoy the drive from South Somerset over to here in a beautiful day and a beautiful morning. I must admit, this was quite a tricky passage to prepare a sermon on. And the reason I felt that is because the passage that I've been given today, which I'll read in a few moments, which is the second part of Esther chapter 5, is a transitional passage. What I mean by that is in the narrative of the story of Esther, that historical narrative of what happened, the second part of chapter 5 links two events. And the trouble with speaking on transitional passages is if you're not careful as a visiting speaker, you repeat everything that was said last week or you feel next week's thunder. And that's quite hard. You've got to be quite careful of that. You've got to be careful that you don't end up making sure that you go to sleep next week when the next chap is talking about what he's been given on. But the more I read and reflected and prayed about this, it came to mind that it's those transitional times when we see God at work, sometimes the most. Sometimes after we've been through that valley experience, that shadow time, that time where we cried out in the wilderness, God, where are you? We look back and we see that God was with us the most. I'm sure famously it's been pointed out to you probably every sermon so far in this series that the book of Esther is notable for it is the only book in the Bible that makes no explicit reference to God in any way. I'm sure you've heard that already. And I agree, I'm in agreement with those commentators who say that the reason why this is done is very explicit. It's a literary device to invite you as the reader To invite us as the people of God to see God here in the passage. Sometimes you read biblical text and we're told very explicitly this was happening in the mind of this person. This is what God was doing. This is why this was preordained. But here in Esther we are invited to stand back and ask was this a coincidence or was it providence? Was this down to a random throw of the dice, literally? If you've been following this series already, or was it down to the work of God in the detail of humanity and history, caring for his people at every stage, even if his name is never mentioned? And so although this is a transitional passage, and I will try not to repeat last week's sermon or preach next week's sermon, I do believe, as I know, that just about all of you here, I'm sure to. The old teacher is useful for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness. So, Lord, this morning, do that as we come to your word. Now, just before we read the passage that I've been given, I do think it is important to just remind ourselves of the context. A, a quick previously in the book of Esther, just to remind us where we are. We are set 100 years after the Babylonian exile. We're in Susa, the capital of the ancient Persian Empire. That's where we are we're not in the promised land these this is the remnant of god's people not who went back but stayed in babylon that stayed in exile and so far the uh this jewish girl called esther has won this rather silly beauty pageant that was held by a drunken and a perpetuous king because his previous wife vashti would not be serrated about like a piece of meat And meanwhile, coincidentally, or maybe not, her uncle Mordecai has rumbled a plot to kill the king, and he speaks out, and the king's life is saved. And in chapter 3, we meet the villain of the piece, that if it were on the stage, we all have to go boo-hiss, and his name is Haman, and Haman comes from the Canaanites. That's where his ancestry is, the historic enemies of the Jewish people. And there's clearly amity between him on his side and not only Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, Queen Esther, but also all the Jewish people. But Haman has been elevated to power. This king of Caesar has made him the second most powerful person in the land. And Haman, in his pomp and his pride, has declared that everyone should bow the knee to Haman. And everyone does. And it continues to go to his head. Everyone that is except Mordecai. Why? Probably because Mordecai is Jewish and only wants to bow the knee before the Lord. Probably because Mordecai recognises him as a Canaanite and there's been a thing going on there for years. Because Mordecai has integrity. And Haman is full of rage And he goes to see the king and convinces the king to kill all the Jews. And they do this rather perverse thing. They roll this dice, the purer, to decide the date that should happen and the date is chosen, the 13th of Adar, which is important because the date's important here. Never coincidence. Or the providence of God. And they have this drunken banquet and they celebrate. There's a lot of drinking that goes on here. There's a lot of euphemisms about people being drunk. High spirits, it says in the NIV. That's drunk. That's what that is. If you've been at a banquet and you leave in high spirits, that's a way of saying we've had too much to drink. And of course, Mordecai and Esther come up with a, a plan to overcome this genocide. And Mordecai uses that famous phrase... Probably the most famous phrase in Esther when he says to his niece, perhaps you were called to the kingdom for a time such as this. And Queen Esther agrees that she's going to do this very dangerous thing. She is going to go and approach the king. And she's not allowed to approach the king unless she is invited. She's, she may be his wife, but she can't just walk in. And she says brave words to her uncle when they conclude the plan. She says, "Well, if I perish? I perish. I'm going to go on and do it. So Esther holds a first banquet in the beginning of chapter 5, which is where I suspect you were last week, for the king and for Haman. And they both sit there getting drunk again. And Esther makes this request that they come back to another banquet the following day where she will ask them an important question. And it's there we pick up the narrative in Esther 5, verses 9 to 14. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. He was drunk. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons and all the ways the king had honoured him and now had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther has invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. He doesn't know she's a Jew at this stage. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up. Reach to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. The suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. I want to approach this passage by asking some questions. They're all fairly simple questions. They all have fairly simple answers, but I believe when we put them together, we start to see what's happening here in this passage and the providence of God. So first of all, why was Haman happy? Why was Haman happy? We read, Haman went out that day as he left the banquet that I spoke about, that I'm sure you talked about last week, and he was happy and in high spirits. Yes, he had had plenty to drink, no doubt at all, but he had other reasons that made him happy. He was puffed up on power. Totally puffed up on power power. That headiness of knowing that he had authority to do all such things, whatever he wanted, not bound by any moral code or responsibility, and the king would almost certainly support him. He believed he was in total control. Throughout this transitional passage of going from one banquet to another, Haman is happy because he believes that he is the master of his own destiny. How wrong he is, as you will find out in the weeks to come, if you don't know the story already. When I started my journey at Bible College back in 2007, we were given some books to read before we began. Some of them were academic books about studying the Bible and so forth, and some were moral instruction books not quite help books, but books of godly wisdom for anyone going into Christian ministry. And one of them I remember very well indeed. It was called Money, Sex and Power. For so often, dear friends, when people fall and falter, and I do not sit here in any judgment or cynicism over people who do, but when they do, People from great heights, often places of great ministry or responsibility or respect, so often the source of their downfall, sin derived from money, from sex or from power. It appears to be that these three things corrupt and corrupt completely. They start off very innocently, for there is nothing wrong with money and even having it. There is nothing wrong and indeed everything good about sex in its right place. And there are indeed people who need to have an exercise of power. But when we allow these things to become gods in themselves, when we allow these things to control us rather than we control them, when these things stop being instruments of use to the Lord but become just objects of gratification and desire, so often the time will come. When the person will fall. I would love to, at this point, make a long and um, clever uh, pronouncement on how the interaction of free will and the providence of God works. But I have no idea. I have no idea. But that's what's happening here. For Haman is not being played. These are his decisions. He is the master of his own destiny in as much as he is free to choose how he responds to the power he has been given. But for all his scheming for religious genocide, the providence of God is going to shine through. How do these two things coexist? I think the minute we say that we've understood them is the minute we actually haven't. But that is what is happening. And the downfall for Haman. Is his relationship with power. But ironically, that is what's made him happy. And then we read, he was full of rage. Uh, in the same, in the same uh, passage, Haman went out that day happy in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed he neither rose nor should fear in his presence, he was filled with rage. So before the sentence is over, we've gone from a man being happy to full of rage. Sounds like a very stable chap, does he? Why is he full of rage? Because he was so full of this power that he was now so full of pride and pomposity that when he met someone that wasn't going to bow the knee to him, he was enraged. He needed to be adored. He needed to be the centre of his own universe. How dare this person not bow their knee? Do they not know who I am? It reminds me of that wonderful, wonderful moment in an episode of Only Fools and Horses when a yuppie, as they were called back in the 80s, sat at the bar in the nags' head, says to Dell, boy, ''Do you not know who my father is?'' And Dell says, ''I'm not sure, mate. Can you not help you?" <laughs> full of pride and pomposity. And when his ego was not rubbed, he was full of rage. But then he does this thing which seems to be a good thing, but it's not... He restrained himself. Why did he restrain himself? Well, first of all, what was he restraining himself from? He was restraining himself from letting that rage out, from thumping Mordecai or killing him there on the spot. But no, he restrained himself because he believed he was so clever. Oh, he restrained himself because he had convinced the king the most powerful man in the nation, not only to kill Mordecai, but for the genocide of all Jewish people in the land. All he had to do was bide his time, for he was powerful, for he knew what he was doing, and it would all come to pass. The punishment of Mordecai was just the beginning. That would happen with the destruction of all the Jews in the land. So he was waiting for the 13th of Adar, the date on the dice. Good job it wasn't the month of Adar, wasn't it? Good job that Queen Esther had time to make these banquets. Was it the coincidence? Maybe. But I doubt it. Providence. The timing here is perfect. He restrained himself, not out of goodness, but out of evil malice and sinful rage. But God knew the timing of all things. And so we come to our age old question. That question is asked. In Job 21, 7-9, why do the wicked prosper, growing old and powerful? They live to see their children grow up and settle down and enjoy their grandchildren. Their homes are safe and from every fear, and God does not punish them that same question that's asked again in Psalm 73 this is what the wicked are like always carefree they increase in wealth surely in vain I have kept my heart pure in vain I have washed my hands in innocence all day long I have been plagued I have been punished every morning again the same question why do the wicked seem to prosper or Psalm 94 how long will the wicked O Lord how long will the wicked be jubilant they put out arrogant words all the evil doers are full of boasting they crush your people O Lord they impress your inheritance they slay the widow and the aged they murder the fatherless. and here indeed we might look at Mordecai in this passage and say oh God why do you allow this to happen why do you allow that terrible man to plan these terrible things and to be so rude and to be so evil and to be so plotting and scheming, why oh Lord why it was all in God's hands the timing was perfect The providence of God in this story is so strong, the very word God or Yahweh need not even be mentioned, for His fingerprints are all over it. For God, His timing is everything. Proverbs 16.9 reminds us, in their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Words we can apply to Haman. Ecclesiastes 3.1, there is a time for everything and a season uh, for every activity under the heavens. Who plans these seasons? Is it humanity and our scheming and our plotting and in politics, or is it God who directs the ways? Lamentations 3:25 to26, the Lord is good to those who hope in him. To the one who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Did Mordecai show a lack of faith? By not punching this silly man on the nose there and then. No. He waited quietly for salvation to come. Yes, Mordecai did have a plan, but he didn't have a plan that was full of his pomp. He had a plan which pointed to God. Oh, Esther, oh, Esther, my niece, maybe God has brought you here for this reason. Let's see what God is going to do. Let's wait. Another question: Why did he boast to his friends? Because Mordecai went home, and he got his wife and all his mates, and he started talking about his wealth and his sons, and the way he honoured them. And if he, no doubt, if he bought himself a, a a new plug-in hybrid Volkswagen, they would have been on the drive, looking at that, and you know all this boasting going on. Even boasting about the Queen, this Jewish Queen, secret Jewish Queen that he didn't even know about, that really he was full of detest for because of his racism and his genocidal thoughts. It was the same sinful root which actually made him restrain himself. It was that pride, it was that ego, it was that power, it was that self worth and all of that led to another little twist in this tale that commentators sometimes call ironic reversal. Ironic Reversal. Because he gets this bit of advice. Oh why, Mordecai? You're so great by the way. You're so great, Mordecai, gosh, you know, you really impressed me. Why don't you get this this stake set up to why don't you get set up this this pole, make it massive, really tall. Get that set, you've got the power of Mordecai, you can like that, can't you? you're a very powerful man. And in the morning, all you need to do is go and see the king, and we'll get Mordecai on that Well, You can do that, yeah, he thinks, I can do that. And so he goes, and he orders for the pole to be set up. It tells us in the last sentence in the passage we read, this suggestion, delighted Haman. What a great idea. And goes and has the pole set up. I don't want to spoil it for you <clears throat> if you don't know the story, but it is Haman who ends up on that pole. That is why it is ironic reversal. For it is ironic here that Haman is actually setting up the instrument of his own death and downfall. And it's reversal because it's from this point in that the, um, the, the I don't want to say the fifth, but the, the trajectory of the Jewish people in the story starts going the other way, as God moves in and comes to save his people. But it's not the only example of ironic reversal revolving around a pole that's been set up in the scripture. what did the enemy think as our saviour dragged that bit of wood through the streets out onto the hill of Golgotha? How did the enemy smile as they saw the Lamb of God pinned to that tree, whipped, beaten, mocked? And as the sky turned black and the Saviour said to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was there much rejoicing in hell? Were the demons dancing? Was the enemy glorifying? I've often wondered at what point did the evil one realise that this was not the end of the Saviour, but the salvation of the world? At what point? I don't know the answer. Maybe you do, maybe you have gleaned it. At what point did that happen? My guess, and it is only my guess, would be at some point after Christ had died, for Christ's return, having death. And the cross, which seemed like the end of it, was actually the beginning of it. The cross to whom to some is a stumbling block or foolishness, actually is the salvation and the power of God. Yes, indeed, this is not the only ironic reversal around a pole. For God allows his people, his servants, indeed even his son, to walk paths which humanly seem impossible, but ultimately bring about the glory of God. Why? Well, He is God, but He is also deliverer, and deliver He does every time. Haman didn't know that Esther was a Jew. Haman didn't know his power was limited. Haman didn't know that the God of the Jewish people was in control. Haman didn't realize that pride does come before a fall. Haman didn't realize that his human power was nothing compared to the power of God. Haman didn't realize that those who think they are in charge politically are not actually in charge at all. Haman is in a story where God isn't even mentioned and doesn't realize that he is in control. But the providence of God comes through in this story like painting a stick of rock. And I'm sure you've all had one of those at some point. I'll finish with a word of testimony. Very fresh testimony indeed. A story which has sort of come to an exciting point in my life just this week. I'll back up a little bit. I won't make it too long. Back in 2016, I was fortunate enough to be invited to do a research project. I was working at the time as a head of RE at a school in Yeovil are research projects on how you could help Church of England schools be distinctive, distinctive in terms of their Christian faith, particularly equipping Christian teachers working in those contexts. The project was 35,000 words and was published in a book and I doubt anyone has read it. I genuinely doubt anyone has read it but it was useful for me to go through the process and it sits in a university library in Oxford and there it remains. If you ever go to that library, do blow the dust off it, won't you? <laughs> I've also just finished recently my master's degree in Christian theology at Moreland's College. Don't tell you that to depress you. That was a long slog. And I picked up that theme of Christian distinctiveness in Church of England schools. I now teach in a Church of England school in, um, in Cheddar in Somerset. If you want any good cheese, eat me afterwards, I can sort you out. And uh, I'm a house there. So state school, I'm a head of house. So we don't have year heads, we have half heads. So I have a quarter of the school that are mine. And for my dissertation, I picked up again this theme of how can you equip people in schools to promote Christian distinctiveness. Last Sunday, I did something very unusual. I sat in church without a remit. That's quite unusual for me. I enjoyed it. We had a visiting preacher, a man called Alan Kirkpatrick, uh, an Anglican vicar, and a Uh, a a missionary in Mozambique for a Christian organisation called I've got to say this right Iris not Isis as I accidentally said earlier in the week Iris Alan had no idea who I was and I sat in the front row about about there and the man got to speak and something very embarrassing happened I was embarrassed anyway but also was quite amazed by it he looked right at me before he spoke and he said to me I can see your heart And the foundation that you've been working on all these years is about to come to pass. The Lord wants you to know it. Wow, I thought. Okay. The last piece of the jigsaw is this. About four years ago, I ended up as a chairman of a Christian charity called CLIP, Christian Liaison for Young People. It's not quite scripture union. CLIP was co-funding a Christian youth worker in our local secondary school, Hewish Episcopal Academy in Langport, not a Church of England school. And we were in partnership with the Diocese of Bath and Wales. The Diocese of Bath and Wales employed the Christian youth worker. Helen, her name was. She'd done it for 15 years, very faithful servant, excellent Christian youth worker. And of course, you may have, I don't know if it happened down here in Payton, but something called COVID happened. I don't know if you remember them. And during that season, it all went a little bit wrong, badly wrong, but the diocese decided that they'd they'd done enough, and they were pulling out, and they were very kind about it. They said they would continue doing the HR if we wanted to continue to support Helen, and and it was time for Helen to decide what she was going to do, and in the end, Helen decided that she was going to resign and move on. Bad blood, it was an end of a season, 15 very fruitful years. And I was a little bit gutted. I said to the rest of the trustees, we need to just go away and, you know, look our wounds a bit and see what God's going to do next. And that was in February. And we had a trustees meeting Tuesday night. I've been thinking to myself as we were moving out to this trustees meeting, Lord, what are we going to do? I don't want to manage decline on my watch. I don't want to be the one that turns the lights out on this charity and this work. What are we going to do? And it was literally 10 minutes before the trustees meeting. And I was washing up. We we were having our dining room table. And I was washing up. And the whole plan fell into my head. And I took it to the trustees. And boy, are we excited about it. And this is what we're going to do. Feeding into Hewish Episcopal Academy, there are 14 primary schools, 12 of which Church of England. And we got £15,000 in the bank. And what we're going to do is we're going to put together a menu of activities, projects that teachers can apply for. For example, paying for a county's evangelist to come in to do six assemblies a year, buying Bibles for everyone in year six, funding a prayer area in your school, purchasing new scripture union assembly resources, paying for the Jesus bus to come in. And we're going to say to the Church of England schools, Twice a year, you're welcome to pick a project and apply for a grant, and we'll fund that project. And we'll do that so that you can increase the Christian distinctiveness in your school. You can promote the Christian faith in line with the Siam's church inspection that happens, which means your head teacher's going to look at it. So you go to your head, and you can say, we can do this in order to get a better result on our next inspection that you want to stick our sign out saying good or excellent. And you come to us and we'll give you the money. And twice a year, we'll write to all the churches and say, in the last six months, counties evangelists went to these schools to preach the word of God. Prayers were put here. Bibles were provided here. The Jesus bus went here. This is what Clip paid for. In the next six months, this is what we're going to pay for. And if you want to give, you can. And if people want to give, I think they will. Do you? I think they will. And if they don't, well, we've got 15 grand to spend in the meantime. I think that's the providence of God. Excuse me for being quite moved by it. But I had a spirit of fear over that on the run-up, that, Lord, I don't want to be the one that turns out the lights. I don't want to be the one on whose watch comes to an end. I don't want to be the one who says, we're not gonna buy new youth workers, we can't afford it, which we can't, and therefore let you down for a lack of faith. But I think what that man was speaking about that day, who knew not who I was, didn't even know that I was a leader in the church. I think that man had a word of God God for, for that charity. And all of those years of sitting in libraries, writing things that no one's gonna read, All of a sudden, it's dawned on me. And I don't mean this pompously. I hope you can understand this comes from a position of humility. But maybe I was called that kingdom for a time such as this. So, are you in a transitional period? Have you just retired? Have you just finished a ministry? Have you just finished a job? Are you worried about what's happening on a world stage? You're wondering who's going to be prime minister next week or next month or the month after. You know, where are you in these things? The providence in the hand of God is in the transitional stages as much as in the mountaintop experiences. So even if you don't know where this is going or what God is doing, may you say blessed be his name. Let me pray for you as a church. Father God, we pray two things as we come to a close today. First of all, Lord, we pray that by the Spirit of God, you will guard our hearts against those foundational, fundamental sins that Haman demonstrated in pride, and also, Lord, of sex and power. Those big three, Lord, that seem to corrupt and corrupt so completely, Lord we know there are others too but Lord I pray that you'll protect your church protect these individuals these families these livelihoods this witness Lord from those temptations Lord I pray that you would nudge anyone here that needs nudging on any of these issues Lord as we look for deliverance from the saviour and Lord we pray too that in times of transition in our lives in times of transition in our nation, on the world stage, in our families, in our jobs, in our ministries, whatever it may be, that we would learn, Lord, to wait quietly for deliverance, for salvation, for direction, and for your leading. It always comes. Sometimes it is so hard. That night, that day, Mordecai had to wait There was going to be another banquet, and Haman was strutting around, not only talking about doing evil things, but setting up poles to impel Mordecai on. Lord, it must have been hard to wait. It must have been hard to hold to the faith. It must have been hard not to want to intervene and take control and say, push over God, let me drive this bus. But no, it didn't happen and you were good, and you were faithful, and you're always good, and you're always faithful. Lord, I claim that promise for this, your church, today. And so, Lord, we draw together our thoughts and reflections with the words of the prayer that, Lord Jesus, you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. us <coughs> not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you and lead you. Thank you for having me.